And that is what Kaiser Sose is for this film. All right, now the quote with a French accent. (laughs) (laughs) The greatest trick is the devil ever pulled (laughs) is convincing the world that he didn't exist. These are the inebriated accounts of movie favorites as you've never heard them before. Our guests watch movies and tell recap stories, blending casts, plots, emotional reactions, theories, quotes, and yes, alcohol. We do the work, you tell the story. These are the movie's stories. I am Benj Noe, and I'm here to tell you the story of The Usual Suspects. So essentially, we begin the film not really knowing much at all. We start with the opening credits showing us over a, just a, a rippling water. The, the kind of creepy and eerie score comes in. Apparently, John Ottman was the guy who did the score for the, for this film uh, based on my rewatch. I don't know anything else that this guy did, but the score truly does add to the film, in my, in my opinion. Uh, really builds it up, builds the tension. It's uh, just a light piano score at the beginning that is truly just adds to the enjoyment of the film. So we start with moving in to a ship sitting in a harbor there's dead men all around uh people have been shot people have been stabbed uh we don't really know what's going on we see one man who has been shot and is clearly sitting down dying waiting to die uh his last act is to or what he thinks is his last act is to light a cigarette he's sitting there can't move uh lights a cigarette and as he lights the cigarette he drops the match that he used to light the cig- to light the cigarette into a pool of gasoline. The gasoline zooms away. Presumably, this is his last act of independence to uh, truly go out on his own terms. But then somebody interrupts him and literally unzips their pants and takes a piss on the trail of burning gasoline fluid. Uh, a mysterious man approaches the the fellow who's sitting there dying. Uh, he's wearing a dark coat. He's wearing a hat. We can't see his face. As the mysterious man goes to light his own cigarette and raises his golden lighter up to his face, the man who's sitting there dying uh, chuckles and has like a look of realization or recognition on his face. And then says, essentially, oh, you know, he identifies this man and calls him Kaiser. The man named Kaiser, so far as we know, pulls out his gun and shoots dead the poor fellow who was sitting there dying, trying to kill himself by blowing himself up on the boat. The mysterious man turns away, drops a cigarette into the pool of gasoline again, reigniting it, steps his way off the boat, and then the boat explodes. Uh killing everyone aboard who wasn't already dead and presumably destroying any evidence of this crime that happened. 
we fast forward a little bit to essentially the next morning. Uh, the Giancarlo Esposito, uh, who you may better know as Gustavo Fring from Breaking Bad, uh, plays a detective who's called in to investigate clearly what has happened on this boat. They find all kinds of mutilated bodies. People have been shot. People have been stabbed. And it's his job to figure out what exactly the hell happened last night. He's talking to the people who are investigating the crime scene. And they say, oh, there's two survivors. One is a Hungarian criminal who looks like he just came off the grill, half-baked, face completely destroyed. And then another guy who survived pretty much unscathed. He's in custody of the police, and he's telling he's been telling them his story the entire night. One of the people who allegedly died, the man who was sitting and smoking the cigarette and is shot dead by the mysterious man wearing a coat and a hat, is identified as Dean Keaton, played by Gabriel Byrne. We recognize him the second that we see him. It's like, oh, cool, Gabriel Byrne, we know you. Uh, a U.S. Customs agent named Dave Kuyan has been pursuing Dean Keaton ever since Dean Keaton was identified as a corrupt, corrupt cop, thinks he's a, a longtime, uh, lifelong criminal, and has made Keaton kind of a personal project of his. When the U.S. Customs agent Dave Kuyan hears that Dean Keaton... So this U.S. Customs agent Dave Kuyan, who has been pursuing uh, Dean Keaton for years and years and years finds out that Dean Keaton is allegedly dead. He gets contacted by his friend in LAPD, who's like, Dave, you gotta get the hell out here. The guy you've been looking for is dead, and someone saw him killed. So, Dave Kuyan flies his way out to New York and says, I gotta talk to this guy myself. The person who survived, who's completely unharmed, completely unscathed, walks off that boat, totally healthy, is uh, Roger Verbal Kent. Verbal is being his nickname because he's very quiet, played by Kevin Spacey. Keep in mind, folks, that this film came out in 1995 when Brian Singer as a director and Kevin Spacey as an actor collaborating on a film did not set off alarm bells across the country. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you put those two on a movie set together, it'd be like, what the hell are we doing? <laughs> Keep everyone safe. Uh, Anyways, uh, Agent Kuyan uh, calls Verbalkin into his buddy's office and says, essentially, Verbal, I need to know that Dean Keaton is dead. Uh, he's been a personal vendetta of mine. And Verbal says, why in the fuck would I ever talk to you? Uh, I just got complete and total immunity by telling everyone exactly what happened on the boat. And this is my story. And this is how I told it. And so... Uh, Agent Kuyan threatens him and says, you know, I mean, if you want to go to jail or if you want to be put out that you're a rat and you're cinching on people, fine. You can walk out of here without telling me the story and you won't make it 15 feet down the street without being killed yourself because I let slip a few words into the ears of people that I trust who are in prison who are good cooperative criminals. So Verbal reluctantly says, all right, I'll tell you the story. I will tell you the story of how we ended up on that boat. And by we, he means a few key characters. Um, and so essentially the rest of the film is uh, Verbal Kent, played by Kevin Spacey, uh, telling the tale of what led to 25 people being killed on a boat in uh, the Long Beach Harbor. 
So it starts with a few guys getting pulled in because a truck loaded with gun parts is stolen in New York. Uh, the people that are pulled in are all longtime criminal criminals that are known to the police. They include Dean Keaton, played by Gabriel Byrne, the man who was smoking the cigarette on the boat and tried to blow himself up, but then was killed by someone he called Kaiser. Uh, Verbal Kent gets pulled in as well. And then uh, the three other main members of the gang, Kevin Pollack playing Todd Hockney, uh, who is just a small, another small time crook. And then two other small time crooks who work together. Uh, Fenster played by Benicio del Toro. And of course, uh, McManus played by Stephen Baldwin back when Stephen Baldwin was also a marketable property. There's a lot of people <laughs> in this film who uh, have since moved on to not necessarily bigger and better things, but uh, have moved on regardless. These five guys get pulled in by the police, five longtime criminals, and get put into a lineup. While they're in the lineup, uh, they start making jokes with each other and then get put into uh, lockup. While they're in lockup, McManus proposes a plan to the members of this five-man ragtag team and essentially says, hey, I have a little heist that I think that we could pull off. Uh, requires all of us. We need all of us to do it. Uh, Keaton, who played by Gabriel Byrne, is reluctant to join in at first. He is dating a high-powered attorney um, trying to go on the straight and narrow, uh, but is still being constantly harassed by the police. Eventually, he's convinced to join in the heist uh, by Verbal, who comes to his apartment and says, they won't take you without me. I really need this job. These guys have all done time before. They're all low-level criminals, uh, but they're not idiots. And Keaton eventually says, I would really love to stick it to the NYPD, which this plan ma majorly involves. So this is how these five fellas come together. Uh, Todd Hockney played by Kevin Pollack, Michael McManus played by Stephen Baldwin, uh, Fenster played by Benicio Del Toro, who can barely speak English in this film. <clears throat> and uh, Dean Keaton and uh, Verbal Kent. So the plan is essentially there exists within NYPD this program completely off the books and completely legal where an NYPD police officer picks you up at the airport and drives you wherever you want to go if you're a high-level criminal and you're flying into New York and they will tootle you around town and you have your own little police escort by you sitting in the back seat. The plan goes off fairly well. Uh, the... The, our five guys get the drop on this guy who's uh, transporting emeralds and smuggling emeralds in. Uh, the news reporters show up at the scene of the crime where the police car is in flames left by our friends. And everything goes off quite well to the point where the five guys are like, okay, this is interesting. Um, we might need to uh do another job together again and then they decide ultimately to <laughs> go out to los angeles to sell these jewels that they've stolen from this guy who was smuggling them they all go out to los angeles together as a way to lie low get away from the scene of the crime 
and meet with the fence who's going to take the jewels. The fence uh, takes them, says, hey, if you guys are interested in any more work, I have some more work for you. Eventually, through some hemming and hawing, primarily by Keaton, uh, they decide, okay, cool, we'll take another job, make a little bit more money, and just kind of see how things go. They hit uh, a drug dealer who originally they believe is a uh, guy who deals in jewels. So they didn't want to, didn't want to get involved with drugs because that brings down you know serious federal penalties. So they <laughs> rob this drug dealer in a parking deck, uh, kill his bodyguards, take his drugs, and uh, are resolved to meet with the fence who turned them onto this job and say, you know, what the fuck? Like, we thought we were doing a simple <clears throat> robbery that didn't involve drugs, but um, they get hooked into, you know, something that would have serious ramifications if they were ever to be caught. They go to meet with their fence again. Again, the meeting is much more hostile this time. And... Uh, basically say to the guy, you know, what the fuck? We thought we were talking to somebody who was doing drugs. Or, or excuse me, we thought we were talking with somebody who was doing, uh, who was just dealing in jewels as opposed to drugs. You know, drugs are something that we don't want to deal with. And the guy says, hey, it wasn't me. I was turned on to this job by some lawyer. Conveniently, some this some lawyer wants to meet with all of them. And... The five guys who are all amped up, pissed off because they got kind of hoodwinked, hoodwinked into doing a job that they didn't want to do, uh, say, okay, that's interesting. We want to meet with him as well. What you have to keep in mind is that during the entire film, there's certain points where we cut back to the office where, again, this is just verbal Kent telling the story. He's the only one who's lived. This is his word that we're taking. It's an unreliable narrator situation where he's essentially just telling us a tale and saying, this is how everything goes. This is how everything goes down. And the police are just sitting there listening, wrapped, essentially saying, okay, sounds good. We got it. Kind of like you right now. The unreliable exactly. narrator. Yeah. So far as you know, mm -hmm. this is the movie. Um, and you're Imagine more sober than you as the unreliable narrator. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so far again, so far as we know, um, so they eventually decide to meet with a lawyer. Oh, but first important thing I need to talk about. So Giancarlo Esposito, who I mentioned was the police detective in the present day, who is investigating this Long Beach situation, goes to meet, or, or not meet with, but interrogate the, uh, half barbecued Hungarian fellow who is sitting in a hospital. They put a police escort on the guy. Uh, the guy barely speaks English. They have to get a Hungarian translator. But while they're talking to the guy, he keeps repeating this one name over and over. Kaiser Soze. Kaiser Soze. And Gian Giancarlo Esposito recognizes the name and gets this look of cold fear on his face, essentially. Um, and says... Uh, basically says to the guy, like, what the fuck did you just say? What name did you just drop in front of me? So the guy says, oh, Kaiser Soze, he was there. He was killing many men. Um, uh, Giancarlo Esposito reaches out to Dave Puyon, our customs agent from New York, plays by, played by Chaz Palminteri, um, 
notably of a Bronx Tale, the shittiest version of a gangster movie ever made. Um, who uh, goes into Verbal Kin and basically says, who the hell is Kaiser Sose? And Verbal's reaction is instant. And he's just like, yeah, fuck. Like, he knows that something has been blown open in the tale that he's been trying to tell the police detectives. So Verbal explains it that going back into the story, they meet with this lawyer after the killing of the drug dealer and the taking of the drugs and the bad interaction with the fence. And the lawyer comes in, played by Pete Postlethwaite, and he rests in peace, recently passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and the lawyer comes in, and his name is Kobayashi. Okay, Kobayashi. The lawyer says, I have basically brought all five of you together at the behest of my client, who is Kaiser Soze. <clears throat> Four of the men, except for verbal, react. They get, again, that same look of fear on their face that Giancarlo Esposito had when he heard the name. And Verbal's the one when they're in this meeting with the lawyer who has to say, who is Kaiser Soze? Like, I don't know who this is. It's explained to all of us in a flashback told by Verbal that Kaiser Soze is this notorious criminal. He's like the boogeyman for criminals. Started out as a small-time criminal in Turkey or Eastern Europe or something like that. His wife and children were killed in front of him by criminals. He killed his wife and children because his wife had been raped and his uh, children had been brutalized by these other criminals that were trying to take over his territory. And he killed his own family and then all of the criminals just to prove a point. After that, he took down the entire gang by himself, disappeared, and has since been rumored about to be existing, but no one's ever seen him. No one knows who he is. He's just this absolutely terrifying individual that if you cross him, you're killed instantly before uh, his name ever crosses your lips. That is explained to all of us as Kaiser Soze and why everyone is so terrified of him. The guy's like a fucking force of nature. No one knows what he looks like. No one knows who he is. No one knows if he's even real. Um, a lot of people believe that he's real, uh, at least in the context of the film, but no one is absolutely sure of it because no one has dealt with him and lived to talk about it, except for this lawyer who says he's there representing Kaiser Soze. The lawyer says, Mr. Soze, you have crossed Mr. Soze without knowing it in one of several ways. Each of you uh, kind of runs down the, the, uh, the whole list of how they've pissed off Soze, but they didn't realize that they were pissing him off, which is the only reason they're still alive. Uh, it's revealed that Todd Hockney, played by Kevin Pollack, is the one who actually stole the truck of gun parts at the very beginning of the film that brought them all into the lineup. The lineup was an excuse to get all of these guys in the same room and use them for what Kobayashi, the lawyer, is proposing now. That they enter onto a boat in the port of Long Beach, uh, destroy the drugs or take them, and destroy the money or take it. Because the people who were on this boat are the rivals of Kaiser Soze, and he needs them destroyed to basically end them once and for all. After the meeting breaks up, which before it does, Kobayashi provides them with envelopes labeled with each of their names, which reveals their basically entire history, their criminal history, what's known to the public, what's not known to the public. 
and notes that if any of them refuse to cooperate, then close family members will be killed and violated in horrible ways before they die, before they themselves are killed by Kaiser Sose and his mysterious organization. So they have some serious motivation to do this. Uh, one of the guys, Fenster, again, played by Benicio Del Toro, uh, says, fuck this, I'm out. Uh, they get a message from the lawyer a few hours later saying, we noticed he tried to run, so we killed him. Here's where you can find his body. So they suddenly realize that this lawyer is not fucking around and that they are playing for real. As revenge, instead of kowtowing to the whim of Kaiser Soze, they decide to go after the lawyer. They uh, follow the lawyer into his office building in a nice little heist scene that the makers of the movie put into the program. They uh, basically kill the lawyer's bodyguards, bring him up to the top floor, and they're going to kill him on the spot. But then the lawyer says, uh, before you do me in, I think are the exact words that he uses, wouldn't you allow me to go down and conclude my business with, and then he gives the name of Dean Keaton's girlfriend. Uh, Gabriel Byrne, Dean Keaton says, you're lying, you're bullshitting, there's no way that you're meeting with her. They go down to this lawyer's office, and there she sits, just there on some sort of a simple extradition immigration matter. He turns around and looks at all of them and says, just as a reminder, if I ever see any of you again before this job is complete, that I will kill your family, I will kill your friends, or rather, that Kaiser Soze will kill your family and kill your friends. And I don't expect you to see, to see you again, and the job needs to be done tonight. So that brings us to truly the night of the incident. Uh, the incident that brought us all together. There's a boat in Long Beach. Uh, the, the guys, the four remaining guys, scope it out and say, well, if we wait for the money, there's going to be 10 to 15 more guys here. But if we don't wait for the money, then we're doing this on a suicide mission and we're not going to get any, any, any money out of it. They all agree to wait for the money. So the night of the incident starts. Uh, McManus is posted on a rooftop as kind of a sniper type situation. Um, Dean Keaton walks along the dock approaching two of the guys. Uh, there suddenly these Hungarians who run this drug operation that competes with Kaiser Soze surround him. He's kind of sitting there playing the fool. And then the shooting starts. McManus starts shooting the people surrounding Keaton. Keaton starts shooting the people surrounding uh, him. And then they all make their way onto the boat looking for the drugs, for this massive shipment of cocaine that's supposed to revitalize the, these competitors of Kaiser Sose. Um, but we don't see anything. We don't, uh, we're on the boat, we're looking through the boat following along Keaton and uh, McManus, uh, killing many, many guys, and there's no Coke. There's no Coke anywhere on the boat. And they suddenly realize that something isn't quite right here. Hockney, the guy who stole the gun parts, instead of doing his job and going onto the boat looking for stuff, says, oh, cool, I'm going to go to the van and take the money and drive away and leave everybody in the lurch. 
he opens up the back of the van, looks at all the money sitting there and is shot in the back. Turns around and has this strange look on his face, almost like a look of recognition before he shot again and completely drops dead. Meanwhile, we're following again, uh, Keaton and McManus walking around the boat, looking and looking and looking. They eventually bump into each other because they entered at separate times and in separate, separate situations. And Keaton tells McManus, there's no Coke. I've been up every, up and down every inch of this goddamn ship and there is no Coke anywhere. While they've been walking up and down the boat, we've been getting these cuts of a guy who is absolutely terrified and is sitting in kind of like a front row cabin on the ship. Uh, he says, you know, I know that Kaiser Soze is here. He's coming for me. He's looking for me. And this guy is absolutely terrified. A guy who's on the ship just keeps telling him to shut up and stay quiet. Eventually, the door to his room opens and a shadow falls across his face as he absolutely quivers with fear, begs for his life, says, I told them nothing, I told them nothing, but then is shot dead by, presumably, Kaiser Soze. Keaton and McManus say, you know, when they realize there's no drugs on the boat and that they've been hoodwinked, they're like, we have to get the hell off this boat. Uh, Keaton walks out onto a top deck after killing a, four more, a few more dudes, turns around, and McManus is walking towards him. McManus looks at him with a strange look on his face and just says, it's the strangest thing, and drops dead because he's been stabbed in the back of the neck with a screwdriver. Keaton is making his way to escape and is shot in the back uh, by somebody on an upper level, and he falls down into the exact position we found him at the start of the film, uh, shot through the back, can't feel his legs. And then that's when we realize that Kaiser Soze is in fact on the boat. By the way, Verbal has been hiding this entire time. Keaton told Verbal to get out, talk to his girlfriend. Uh, Verbal is physically disabled and is not able to, due to cerebral palsy and is not able to like keep up with the gunfight. And he's like, you need to survive and tell the tale here. Uh, we go through the same situation again. Verbal says, I'm hiding behind a, a stack of ropes off to the side of the boat. And I see a man in a long, dark coat and a dark hat, and I can't see his face. And he shoots Keaton dead. The police, especially the customs agent, Agent Kuyan, says, this is all bullshit, Verbal. He's like, you know what really happened here? And you're trying to protect your friend. He's like, Dean Keaton was Kaiser Soze. You never saw Keaton actually die. Keaton is the one who was able to mastermind this entire situation. All just to get onto the boat to kill the poor bastard who was hiding in the cabin, who was going to testify that he could positively identify Kaiser Soze. That's what the lawyer was meeting with Keaton's girlfriend about. And that's kind of just the, the general plot that's been underlying the entire movie. Verbal strongly objects. He says, there's no way. Keaton was my friend. He was helpful. He was kind to me when no one else was. And I saw him die. I know I saw him die. Crying at this point in the police officer's uh, office. But eventually comes to the realization that, oh, you know what? Maybe Dean Keaton was Kaiser Soze. The 
police officer says you have to turn state's evidence. He's going to kill you the second that he sees you um, because you know who he really was or would at least be able to figure out that he was, in fact, Kaiser Soze, this dark criminal mastermind. The <laughs> verbal says, no way, I have my immunity. I'm getting the hell out of here. Um, I don't trust the police. I don't trust any of you. I'm going to do things my own way. Verbal leaves, finally, released from the custody of the police. He has his immunity, and he kind of just shovels off down the hallway. Uh, Verbal goes to collect his personal effects from the lockup at the police station. Hand over his things, one watch gold, one cigarette lighter gold. And then walks out of the police station, Denver to be seen again. Agent Kuyan is sitting talking to his buddy who has this absolutely ridiculous sloppy office. His buddy's sitting there and Agent Kuyan gets himself a fresh cup of coffee. Sits on the edge of his buddy's desk and looks at the giant bulletin board that is posted behind his buddy's desk where he's been the bulletin board that's been in front of Verbal's face for the entirety of their conversation and the entirety of their meeting. Eventually, he is looking at it and comes to a sudden realization when one of Verbal's little stories that he had told back at the start of the interview, uh, namely that he was in a barbershop quartet in Skokie, Illinois, links directly to the bulletin board. The bulletin board is a quartet brand bulletin board produced in Skokie, Illinois. Agent Kuyan sits there, literally the coffee cup falls from his hand as he stares and his eyes roam all over this bulletin board. And all these recollections keep coming back to us. All these little quotes and quips that came from verbal story, all these perfect little lines that indicate to us He just sat there for two and a half hours and made up that entire fucking story just to fool the police. Why would he do this? We see things like the name of the fence is Redfoot. He talks about this woman who's like orca fat. There's a picture of an enormously overweight woman on the bulletin board. The name Redfoot is there as an alias for someone. And then as Agent Kuyan drops his cup of coffee... We see on the bottom of his coffee mug, and keep in mind, Agent Kuyan had been standing over Verbal and drinking from this coffee cup uh, while Verbal looked up at him. The name of the brand of the coffee cup is Kobayashi, the same name of the lawyer that allegedly met with all of them and told them to uh, go through with this horrible scheme. Meanwhile, we cut to the outside in between Agent Kuyan coming to this realization Verbalkin is shuffling his way down the street, uh, slowly making his way down the street. You know, you know, he's going to be killed all while these little audio clips are interplaying of all the stories that he's telling, especially emphasizing Kobayashi. There's a shot that focuses on Verbal's feet. He has a very distinctive walk, a shuffle that comes from cerebral palsy. And then as you're walking, his left leg, which has always been bent and kind of gimped to the side, slowly straightens out with each new step he takes until he's walking perfectly normally. You see his left hand, which has been curled into a kind of a twisted shape, suddenly straighten itself out and he cracks his knuckles. He pulls out a pack of cigarettes, pops a cigarette in his mouth, 
lights his cigarette with the same gold lighter that we saw the mysterious man use at the very beginning of the film when he was lighting a cigarette before killing Keaton. And then he gets into a car driven by Kobayashi, the lawyer. The car motors away. Agent Kuyan, who's sprinting out of the building, misses them by two seconds. And it's at that moment that you realize that Roger Verbal Kent, the guy who's been telling the tale to the police for the entire time, is in fact Kaiser Soze, and that they just missed him. A point that Verbal made earlier in the movie that if Kaiser Soze came that close to being caught and he would never surface again, and that just suddenly he would be gone is the last thing that we see, a retelling of that moment that, poof, he's gone. And so that's the story of The Usual Suspects. Oh, yeah, about how I came to it? Yeah. Sure, I can just, I can run on that right now. So it's kind of a weird situation how I came to this movie originally. (laughs) I was down in Atlanta, you know, being originally from Michigan, visiting my aunt and uncle. My uncle's a big movie guy. Uh, I was probably, shit, 13, 14, probably too young to be watching this movie, which is extremely violent, very bloody. Um, no sex, if that makes you squeamish. <laughs> and does. Uncle, it does. It does. I'm sure everybody's super nervous when it comes to sex. Um, my uncle basically came back and was like, oh, you know, he had kind of mentioned the movie. He's like, oh, have you ever seen that? And I was like, no came out when I was four years old. What do you want from me? Um, he said, interesting. He owned a DVD copy of it. I think it was, you know, back in kind of early DVD days or whatever. And he's like, well, I have to be up super early for a meeting, but you should put this movie on and uh, watch it. And then we can talk about it tomorrow. I'm like, okay, sounds good. So put the movie on, watch it. It's about an hour and 45 minutes. My holy shit reaction at the end of the movie was so loud that it woke both of them up <laughs> sprinting out of their bedroom they thought they were placed on fire and i'm like oh i just watched the end of the movie and they're like oh got it they're like don't scream so loud i'm like okay they <laughs> thought kaiser Sose was in the house kaiser Sose was breaking into the literally breaking into the house so i didn't have anything to do i'm just a you know fucking stupid little high schooler on summer vacation visiting my aunt and uncle and uh so i promptly popped it back in and watched the entire movie from beginning to end right again. So it was about three and a half hours of watching The Usual Suspects. I think that is the only movie that I have ever watched for the first time that immediately restarted and watched all the way through again because you get such a completely different perspective on it. And then I just remember just being by myself and my aunt and uncle both just being like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and Which I'm time was better, the first or second? Huh? Which time was better, the first or second? The second, for sure. Uh, I mean, it's a movie that you absolutely have to watch with somebody who's never seen it before. Um, Because watching this movie with someone who's never seen it before and knows nothing about the plot, the end is always so fantastic. I watched it with a good friend of mine in law school who had never seen it before. And she actually, going into the movie, said about 45 minutes in, she's like, oh, uh, Kevin Spacey, Verbal Ken. He's Kaiser Soze. I said, oh, are you sure about that? So we get to the end of the movie, and it's the big dramatic <laughs> conclusion with the customs agent, whatever. And he's convincing himself and thinks he's convincing Kevin Spacey that, oh, no, Gabriel Byrne, Dean, uh, Dean Keaton, he was Kaiser Soze, and you're an idiot. You're stupid. 
uh, you don't realize what's going on and verbal's just like, oh, you're right. I am stupid. I'm, I'm weak. I'm simple. And then walks out of this fucking guy's office, like the biggest criminal in the world and walks out of the guy's office with his fake gimp and his fake uh, contorted hand. And uh, she was like, oh, well, that was kind of disappointing. Like, I thought I was right the whole time. And then as the scene slowly develops, like, literally, I stopped watching the movie and just watched her reactions to the rest of the movie. She's like, why is this movie still on? I think it's over. And just the the quick interplay, that entire last scene, the way that that is shot is just probably one of my favorite scenes of all, in all of film. The quick cuts between verbal collecting and if you're paying attention and that's why i specifically mentioned it the gold cigarette lighter the gold watch things that you had seen quote unquote kaiser sose using in his retelling of the story um from the 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 police officer who controls like the the evidence room and cutting from that to the realization and dave kuyan's face the customs agent uh looking at the bulletin board behind him and seeing just all the hearing all the quotes again of the story that this guy concocted apparently christopher mcquarrie who wrote the movie um and is now pretty famous for directing the more recent mission impossible movies he wrote it by sitting down at least the verbal part and the telling the weird little quirky stories sitting down in front of a fully populated bulletin board in a break room wherever he was working at the time literally sat there and wrote the whole movie, told all those little interesting asides. That's where the barbershop quartet in Skokie, Illinois came from. Picking beans in Guatemala. Um, and there's a reference to Guatemalan coffee somewhere on the uh, the bulletin board. And that's really where that came from. It's a, it's a fun film, a great film. And like I said, it's the first time you see it is fantastic. That, that realization moment. And then the best thing about it is watching it with people who have never seen it before. So I recommend everybody try that at least once because it just, the watching the reactions of other people is actually more entertaining than watching the re the end of the film itself. And that's all she wrote. Bravo. Perfect. Um, were there any, quotes or anything that you want to like that i can splice back in that you want to you want to act out any <laughs> yeah um, the i don't know the one i haven't seen it in a while but the one that comes to mind is just um well when... there's one i mean i would say the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist and so that movie that line is quoted in the film and i could say it again if you want me to but it's a quote from I will. Uh, it's a quote from Charles Baudelaire, the French the French poet, who basically said the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist, which is a scary thought if you kind of parse that out and if you accept the premises presented by that quote is true, that is terrifying. A thought that there's something so evil out there, and you say, oh well, this isn't real. But it also makes it so easy for that evil to operate because you think, oh, it's a fiction. It's a it's a nightmare. It's a ghost story. It's a boogeyman that you use to frighten your children. What if that person's real? And that is what Kaiser Sose is for this film. All right. Now the quote with a French accent. <laughs> <laughs> I got to think about it. Hold on. 
the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing the world that he didn't exist. That was kind of French German, I guess. But we'll take that. <laughs> That'll work. We'll, um, we'll take it. Yeah. The um the other thing I was thinking of was like all the um when it starts to like kind of click in place when like we're realizing that it that verbal kent is kaiser so say mm-hmm. and you know the cop is is or the detective is kind of coming to time. with it and it's like all the all the verbal kent quote like the right. you know the skokie uh barbershop quartet the like all that like <laughs> playing Back, quickly barbershop quartet in skokie illinois or uh mr redfoot the the fence is named mr redfoot of course mm-hmm. kobayashi the... kobayashi the thing that rings through his head like a clarion bell all the way to the end and what really concludes that scene of him standing there dropping his coffee cup his jaw hanging open as he's looking at the bulletin board is again repeated kobayashi 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 and the camera slowly turns and spins and focuses on the bottom of his shattered coffee cup and it's the kobayashi porcelain company I actually have a uh, T-shirt. I should have worn it for this. I don't even know where it is anymore at this point. I bought it for my uncle, the one who turned me on to this movie at the same time. And it's the Kobayashi Porcelain Company. And we have matching T-shirts. <laughs> kind of a deep cut, but when you wear them out and somebody recognizes it, recognizes it it's always a, always a good laugh. There you have it. That is the story. And these are the movie's stories. Was it 100% accurate? Yeah, that sounds right. Follow the movie's stories podcast on Twitter at the MOV stories. Also, see all of our inebriated storytelling podcasts as part of the stories podcast at the stories pods on Twitter as our guests rewrite the past across various sports. Alcoholic drinks are consumed voluntarily by our guests at their own discretion. Please drink responsibly.